spending our time um, in, that, in that second passage of 1 Timothy, which speaks to the wonderful grace of God. Why don't I open with prayer? Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. And we ask now that as we have heard your word and dwell on it, that you would open our eyes afresh to your kindness in the Lord Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. What have you done for me lately? Now that's, if you've got your introduction there, that's the title of the introduction. What have you done for me lately? Um, these words, I think, so often capture the attitude of, in many areas of life, but particularly uh, of the supporters of professional sports teams. Uh, especially when it comes to the coach or the manager of a team. Uh, I follow the English Premier League, the highest soccer league, and uh, that is the league of what have you done for me lately. It doesn't matter how much success you have. It doesn't matter how many trophies you win. If enough time passes and you don't achieve and hit expectations, if you're the coach or manager, your job is done. You're out. Indeed, that is also can be the attitude that we have to politicians. A politician comes in as a leader, they perhaps manage a crisis really well, they receive a lot of applause um, and accolades in the media, but after time, they can't just keep coming back again and again to their, their past achievements, or at least I don't think the public let them do that. Um, at some point, we have to ask, what have you done for me lately? Or perhaps you've had a friend who's done something really nice for you or a family member, um, and they perhaps have a habit of just bringing it up again and again and again. Um, but at a certain point, it kind of loses its, its power, perhaps. Well, when it comes to salvation, what God has given to us as Christ, in Christ, we can sometimes, I think, slip into that thinking of, what have you done for me lately, God? Now, we probably wouldn't say that so openly or brazenly, but at times the familiarity with what... God has done in Christ can tempt us to, to apathy, to start affecting our, our thinking and our zeal dulls. And even when I, I was told I was preaching on this passage, I looked at the, the roster and I had a look at the passage, looked it up, and I had the most foolish of thoughts. And it was a foolish thought. I thought, oh yeah, nothing unexpected here. Terrible. Uh, because Paul here reminds us of the wonderful glory and riches of grace. He is one who is in the grip of grace. And by grace, I mean God's free gift, his favour. Paul, his heart has been captured and he wants Timothy's heart, who he's writing to, and he wants our hearts to be captured as well. See, Paul's writing to his protege, Timothy, who's taken up leadership over the church of Ephesus. And he's writing to him to encourage him on what it means to be a leader and to tell him to keep the main thing, the main thing. Because in this church... Um, as happens in churches from time to time, there come false teachers. There are teachers who are kind of self-appointed and they have some really strange teachings regarding the law and speculation. They're not teaching the faith, but getting caught up in other ideas and they're distracting people. As Paul makes note a couple of verses before um, our passage, he says, well, the law, it can't save, but it can only condemn. And so whatever kind of speculative nonsense the false teachers are giving us or whatever the kind of the speculative nonsense and propaganda of our worldly age um, that we can live without God and be fine, these are all false paths that lead nowhere. And Paul says, 
These are nothing compared to the thing that really counts, what he calls the glorious gospel of the blessed God in verse 11, the thing he's been entrusted with. And Paul, in fact, is the best candidate to carry this gospel, to be the messenger, because he, as we're going to see, he is the proof of it, the proof of it working. Uh, In Paul's life, we're going to see a pattern of game-changing grace. I thought I'd work the the sermon series title in there and get alliteration as well. Um, So we're going with with the grace theme throughout uh, uh, this passage. Uh, And you've got your outline there. We've got the power of grace, the heart of grace, uh, and the depth and reach of grace. But to begin with the power of grace, how is it that one is useful to God? Because I think Paul was pretty useful to God. Uh, here's what he says in verse 12 he says I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy appointing me to his service Paul draws attention first of all to the result of God's grace um, that he is an apostle that he is a representative of Jesus he has been chosen as Christ's ambassador to the nations entrusted to carry this gospel I mean this is a high and lofty thing he has been given and Paul is actually, he's brilliant at it. He's, um, he's a very faithful man. He goes throughout the Roman Empire. He proclaims the gospel. He establishes churches in the most unlikely of places. He is faithful, enduring all sorts of terrible hardship. Indeed, if it wasn't for Paul, there would be no Christianity as we know it because he writes more than half of the New Testament. And we think, yes, Paul, Paul is amazing. We can stand in awe of him. Especially when we think, well, what, what, you know, what have I done? What have I done for God? But as Paul recognizes, it's not really him who is responsible at the end of the day. Jesus has chosen him. Jesus has empowered him to do the job. God's grace has entirely made him all that he is. And this is not Paul giving an air of kind of false humility. Humility. Um, when you go for a job interview. Uh, this is my advice. You want to make sure you're the best candidate. Uh, so you want to put forward the things that are going to make you look good. So that you have the talents and skills and character required. You have the experience in the field, that you're a good fit for the company. You believe in the company and its values. And you can imagine what would happen if you went, you know, went for an interview, you sat down and said, no, nah, don't have any of the skills needed. No experience in this at all. Uh, and, you know, my past kind of character shows I wasn't really a hard worker, so... Can I have the job? Almost, you know, in every circumstance, unlikely. And yet Paul does almost exactly that in a way. He gives a list of the reasons he is completely unqualified. Uh, C.S. Lewis often referred to himself when he was an atheist as the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England when he became a Christian. And if C.S. Lewis was the most reluctant kind of convert in England, Paul, I think, is the most unlikely convert in history. As he says with his own words, even though I was once a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. You would likely know as um, from, you know, what you've read in the past or what we just had read out to us that Paul was once called Saul and he was no friend of the Lord Jesus and of the church. He was an enemy. And it wasn't just um, that he thought that the church was wrong. No, he wanted to stamp out those opinions in others as well. If we look at what Paul says about himself, he says this in the book of Acts, uh, later testifying before a king. He says, 
I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished and tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. Paul says he blasphemed against God by not accepting his son. He persecuted the church, indeed to the point of violence. He was an enemy of the gospel. And it's remarkable that Paul never never hides or excuses his past or his behaviour. I think often people in power want to you know, push away and minimise the things they have done wrong. But Paul says, no, absolutely not. He refers to himself as the least of the apostles at times, the least of all the saints. Here, that he is the foremost of all sinners. And yet his life was transformed. On the road to Damascus, going on his way to you know, hunt Christians as he liked to do, Jesus appeared to him, blinded him physically, but in that moment spiritually opened his eyes. And he saw that he was a blasphemer, not the church. And he, he was a blasphemer, and it wasn't the church that was blaspheming. That he was the enemy of God. He was open to the reality of what he'd done, and in that moment he had a complete about face. He had a complete conversion. And that is, in many ways, almost the prototypical picture of the transformation um, of conversion. And indeed, if we are to ask ourselves, I mean, how do we become useful to God? Well, as Paul says here, it's nothing to do with you. God has graced us and has shown us kindness. We haven't done anything to earn that. It's not even that God sees some kind of hidden potential in us that he can unlock with his grace. No, in fact, we have nothing. And without his intervention, we are not useful to God at all. His grace is the game changer. As he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. If you imagine a river overflowing uh, its banks, I guess it's not too hard to imagine uh, this last year, but that is like the grace and mercy of God. The prayer book says, uh, whose nature it is to always have mercy. Paul's unbelief is transformed to faith. His hatred is transformed to love. And I mean, this was a remarkable change. The church leaders couldn't believe it. They were thinking, is this some kind of trick? Is this really who you've chosen, Jesus? Paul's previous persecuting allies could not believe it. They thought, how have you turned your back on us? Why are you now proclaiming the one that you once hated? It must have been one of the most bewildering things to experience. And as I've said, Paul saw becoming Paul is the picture of conversion, a total change of life. And if that is the true of the greatest of the church leaders, how much more for any one of us? Indeed, we need reminding, especially if we are a leader in the church, that it's not about what we bring to the table. It's not about what God sees in us. Indeed, we can only be worthy to serve God because of his grace. But that is also a great reassurance because it means that God, it's because of God's grace he can change us. He can use us even in our weakness. Martin Luther um, describes the difference in this way. I might have used this before, but I think... It's the best way to describe it. He describes the love of humanity against the love of God. The love of humanity 
We tend to find things that are pleasing to us, don't we? We look for lovable things, things we like, things that are worthy, things that are beautiful, things with potential. But the love of God is not like that. It does not find those things that are lovely or beautiful because nothing is lovely or beautiful before him. But he loves things to be lovable. He creates what is pleasing to him. Um, And that is how we become useful to God. And so the picture of the Bible is that God goes out of his way to pick unsuitable people, to change them and transform them. And that is good news for us, um, that God can use us and grow us by his grace um, and for his purposes. Uh, We then come to the heart of grace, because Paul didn't deserve mercy, but God showed him mercy. And he wants us to know how it's possible that he could show him mercy. Uh, Because we might ask, how can God do things Do this for Paul because by his own words, Paul did some pretty grave stuff, even if it was legal in the time. I mean, some of the early Christians would have asked this about Paul, given what he had done. I mean, why save him? Why show mercy? And I think it's fair to say that uh, for humanity, mercy is in pretty short supply. I think we find it hard to show mercy. Uh, Most of us love justice. Uh, I was driving on the road a couple of weeks back and um, got pulling up to a set of traffic lights, going red, and the car in front of me just blatantly ran the, the red light. Uh, I had a bit of a shock when the car next to me, which was slowing down, suddenly the lights came on and off went the, the highway patrol after them. Uh, and if you could see into my inner self at that moment, I was joyful. I was elated. I was like, yes, justice. Often we long for justice, but mercy does not necessarily come naturally to us. Or often what we mean by mercy is caring for those who are downtrodden and victimised. Those who, I'd say, we deserve mercy because of their misery, of their hardship. But the biblical mercy is different. It's kindness to the undeserving. It's love for the enemy. Of course, we want people to face consequences for their actions, don't they? Especially if they are really evil actions, if they are criminal acts. It's fitting that civil, civil punishment should follow. But sometimes we can have such um, a desire for justice that it almost doesn't become justice anymore because justice is never satisfied. This often happens when public figures perhaps do the wrong thing or are thought to have done the wrong thing and put a foot out of place. And in the age of you know, social media, uh, the mob forms and transgressions have to be punished. Atonement has to be made. And so often, um, no matter you know, how that person responds... Uh, the anger and the fury, it's, it, I mean, never quite stops. It's never quite enough. The, sti- the sin of the public uh, error is never washed away. Some Christians may have thought this about Paul. But often it doesn't occur for those in the mob or for us in our, in our desire for justice what it means for us when we are under that microscope, when we are in the spotlight. Because when it comes to God, when we are before God, what we need to ask for is not justice but mercy. Verse 15, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worse. This is a trustworthy saying, means Paul wants us to take this to heart. And that's that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the main thing. That's the fundamental reason that Jesus comes. It's the fundamental reason that Jesus does all that he does in his earthly life. Oftentimes in the media, you'll have 
um, journalists making assessments about what Christianity is really about and what Jesus is really about. And I'll say, well, he came to show us what love really looks like, which is true. He came to reveal God's character to us, which is also true. But the supreme thing, the supreme reason he came was to save sinners. Which, to put it simply, is to say that we need forgiveness. And Jesus provides it. That's the heart of grace. That's what it's all about. Indeed, Paul says nothing different from Jesus. Jesus says, for I came to seek and save the lost. It's God's prerogative to have mercy. It's up to him. And he gives us that. And it's a wonderful thing in the universal kind of declaration that Christ in Christ, the way is open. And notice there's this personal, though, this personal element, though, to what Paul is saying. He adds on at the end that he is the chief of sinners. And what he's doing here, I don't think he's um, putting a, a list together of all the people that ever, ever lived and then there at the bottom, last, Paul the Apostle, worst person. That's not his point. Um, but his point is that all of us, when we stand before God, we are accountable. Indeed, comparison in one sense means nothing. Because um, sometimes we can think in that, those kinds of ways. I can think, well, I'm not as bad as the, you know, the Russians over there in Ukraine committing war crimes against civilians, which is true in a way. Or I think, well, you know, you might think I'm, not, you know, I'm better than my co-workers who are you know, gossips and they're just relationally not very nice people. But when you've wronged a friend, you don't go up to them and say, well, look, I'm not as bad as that person over there. That's not how you deal uh, with a problem. No, when it's you and the holy God, our sin before us, the chasm, we've rejected him and we've gone our own way. I mean, there is nowhere else to turn. And in this way, I think we can very much take on this chief of sinner label for ourselves. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the wonderful news is that he grants it. He will give us mercy because of the Lord Jesus who has made a way from the overflow of his love. And in many ways, divine forgiveness, it doesn't make sense because God responds to our evil with love. But it's always in his nature to have mercy. And what good and wonderful news that is for each and every one of us. Finally, we come to the extent and depth of grace. And we might ask, well, again, why Paul? I mean, there were other candidates, surely, to carry the gospel. I mean, you know, you've got Peter and John. They're all right. They haven't done the kind of things that Paul has done. I mean, if you were God and you had Paul before you were Saul, I should say, what would you have done with him? Sometimes, I mean, grace is a wonderful thing, but it can, when we think about it, it can be a difficult doctrine to accept, especially when we think about grace to others. If you imagine those who knew people who had been persecuted by Paul, you would think, well, how can God have shown him grace? Or if you know, you know, when I think about and read about some of the things that Russian soldiers have done to Ukraine civilians, I think, I'm filled with fury. And sometimes, we don't, might not say it, but sometimes I think we can have the, the feeling that uh, we're not just uncertain about certain people who... Um, we think maybe they'll never be Christians, but we might even perhaps not want for them to become believers. And yet if we understand the grace of God, we cannot think that way. 
Paul says, For this very reason I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. In many ways, Paul strips back his life. He shows us who he really is and who he was, I should say, to make the Lord's mercy all the more apparent. Paul's sin is great, was great, but God's grace has met it. He's saying if Christ had mercy on me, the greatest of sinners, he can have mercy on you too. And that is why Paul is the perfect person to carry the gospel. Because he reveals the great patience of the Lord, that nobody is beyond the hope of redemption. And that tells us a wonderful a number of wonderful things. Firstly, assurance. Um, often we become, we become Christians, but the question of assurance is a difficult one. We think, well, am I a Christian enough? Have I repented enough? I see my sins every day. Will God be done with me? At the time of the, uh, the Reformation, uh, the, the great truth of sola fide, of justification by faith, um, I think that was one of the things that really won hearts. When you think about why, why is that? Well, I mean, you've got the, the elevation of we're made right with God by faith and not through works, right? But I think the great payoff of justification by faith is assurance. Our assurance does not come from ourselves, but in Christ alone. But if we have faith in Christ, then Paul says that is enough. Because he has met our sin with his grace and love. We should also, as Christians, never doubt the reach and the power of God. I mean, nobody could have expected that Paul turned and was converted, and yet he did. Because God's grace can... Uh, soften even the hardest of hearts. And that's very good news for us if you want to share Jesus with other people because you never know who is going to respond. I can think of people who I never thought would have been Christians and here they are. I mean, the Bible is full of God rescuing um, unexpected people. History is full of God reaching unexpected people. If you asked me when I was mm, 13 or 14 and you showed me a picture of what my future would look like, that I would not only A, be a Christian and B, be a minister, I would think, that's the worst thing ever. Something has gone terribly wrong in my life. But God had mercy on me, a sinner. So we've seen the pattern of grace in Paul. No wonder that Paul concludes with praise as he sees God's grace to him. Um, as he, as he, he opens it with the praise, as he, as he thinks on this, he says, Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. Because God is worthy of our praise, because he is God. And even more so, because he is the God of grace who has loved us. When we ask that question of what have you done for me, um, I mean, God has, has done everything for us, hasn't he? Even if we just looked at the forgiveness of sins. That would be more than enough to praise him forever. But he is with us always. He has paid for our sins, past, present and future. He is working in us by his grace, leading us to be more like his son. Paul knew that and I hope that we know that too. And that's more than enough reason to hope and praise him now and forever. That's the grace that is truly game-changing, life-changing and eternity changing. Why didn't I pray?
that we would love it. Heavenly Father, we thank you that while we were far off, you met us in Christ. That you became man, you became the one mediator between God and humanity to do what we needed to do but could not do. We thank you that it is only because of your grace and mercy that overflows to us that we can be forgiven. That we can not only be forgiven, but we can know you, we can be adopted as your children, and that you are leading us to an eternal glory. Thank you for your grace. Help us to rely on your grace every day and help us to speak of your grace to others. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.